Okay, the first speaker today is Josh Pollard, and he will be speaking on the importance of multilateral institutions. Please help me welcome Josh. My name is Josh Pollard, and I'm very excited to have the opportunity to present my thesis to you on what my idea of change is in the world today. It is my position that our current global environment will facilitate in legitimizing and reforming our multilateral institutions and will also aid in increasing our world leaders' tolerance for compromise. First and foremost, I chose this subject because there is an increasing number of problems that sovereign states cannot uh, solve on their own. For example, the pollution from coal-fired power plants does not stop at the invisible man-made border from which it was emitted. The spread of AIDS in Africa, India, and the Caribbean affects more than just their own populations. The financial crisis which originated in the United States has wiped out over $5.5 trillion in banked assets around the world, which in turn correlates to just over 10% of the world's gross domestic product. Perhaps this emphasis on national relevance might seem like a selfish perspective, but by and large, it takes problems to become part of the national interest in order to truly commit to finding a solution. This is especially true in democracies where politicians are constantly jockeying to stay in office. It is also true that many of these tribulations have been in the headlines for many years. But 2009 presents four issues that together corroborate and prove that it is an optimal time to at last begin to find solutions to our most pressing problems. The four main issues that I will focus upon today are the moderating effects of economic globalization, the implications of the global financial crisis, the emergence of what Samuel P. Huntington calls a uni-multipolar world, and the effect of the new American administration. We must first understand that this process will not be short, smooth, or even free of setbacks. But it is my position that today's world's leaders understand that these problems are in need of international cooperation and must be solved in order to ensure the well-being of tomorrow's generations. Very quickly, I would like to qualify what I believe these problems are. Environmental degradation, global warming, the depletion of national, natural resources, and the food and water crises, the division of Arctic lands, economic stability, stability and development, global security and the non-proliferation of WMDs, human rights issues, and finally, the implications of failed and failing states. Multilateral institutions have a turbulent history, from the Concert of Europe to the League of Nations, to our many modern institutions who have had a varying degree of success. Although I wish I was able to speak on each individual institution, I feel that it is important to use my 15 minutes to substantiate my thesis. It is important to acknowledge that no single institution will prove successful in combating the entire scope of problems that we are faced with. Thus, it is advantageous that we have many multilateral institutions with many different forms. The reputation of most of these multilateral institutions have been soured. They've been viewed as highly bureaucratic, glorified, and costly debate clubs. Reforms are urgently needed in order to update and streamline their efficiency. NGOs and corporations must also be introduced into the process for they are becoming increasingly powerful and influential. The first issue I would like to address is the moderating effects of globalization. David Held defines globalization as the widening, deepening, and speeding up of worldwide interconnectedness in all aspects of contemporary social life. Globalization and the increasing web of relationships across the globe 
will provide the foundation for my argument, as it has created an increasing dependence on one another. Hillary Clinton used the Sun Tzu quote at the Asian Society last month to describe this by saying, when on a common boat, cross the river peacefully together. In my opinion, this is not empty rhetoric, but a theme of the new globalized era, which was further strengthened by the Chinese President Hu Jintao when he met Secretary Clinton this past week and returned a Chinese proverb by saying, we'll have progress hand in hand. The relationship between the Chinese and the Americans is the most important example of this interconnectedness. Their economies are wholly dependent on one another. China depends on the United States for its giant trade surplus, for the balancing of its currency through investing in the U.S. dollar and keeping its exchange rate low to maintain its status as a low-cost producer. The United States is just as dependent on China for its investments in U.S. and financing the U.S. debt. Globalization spreads the wealth through international trade due to competitive advantages found throughout the world. A UN study has shown a direct correlation between the increase in GDP and the democratization of political landscapes. The only exception to this is the oil-rich countries such as Saudi Arabia and the UAE. With stabilization and trends towards democracy, it would also be likely to see an increase in the quality of education. Economic globalization has also increased the number of middle powers in the world, like Canada, Sweden, Argentina, and Ireland, middle powers have a long history of using multilateral institutions in order to adopt international resolutions. As Daniel Griswold has written, so long as goods cross borders, armies will not. And in the past 20 years, the number of state versus state conflicts has plunged. While these traditional forms of conflict have decreased, we have experienced a surge in terrorist and international criminal activities. Globalization has empowered these criminal groups who have now have the ability to operate on a global level. Thus, due to the nature of this type of new risk from non-state actors, it will broaden the motives for states to collaborate against these asymmetrical forces. Globalization has been blamed for our current financial situation. And though it is evident that globalization did have an effect on the size and the reach of the crisis, we must keep in mind that it was the poor policies overextension, and the panic selling that caused this global recession. This leads me to my next issue, our current global financial crisis. On September 11th of 2008, when the former Treasury Secretary, Henry Paulson, allowed the financial services firm Lehman Brothers to fail, it confirmed the level of our global economy's systemic risk. Systemic risk is defined as the risk of the entire market. And due to the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the financial industry froze. The blowback from Lehman Brothers' failure was felt around the world, for even the most trusted banks were no longer willing to lend to one another. The international systemic risk caused a cascading effect that proved international economies must work together to experience stable and constant growth. The United States has been severely damaged by the financial crisis, although many other countries have been damaged more so. For example, the world's second and largest economies, being Japan and Germany, have experienced a larger slowdown in GDP growth than the U.S. has. Iceland, Ukraine, and Hungary have been struck so hard that they have been forced to the International Monetary Fund, which is the de facto lender of last resort. The most industrialized nations are infusing capital by the hundreds of billions into their economies through ad hoc stimulus packages. 
It is understandable that when in a crisis, a country might turn inwards and adopt policies that will help their own economies at the expense of others. I do not believe that the thickening of borders will result from this crisis, for it is widely, widely understood that protectionist policies are un, unsustainable and create uncompetitive markets that cannot flourish in the globalized economy. Protectionism also invites retaliation. It can cause trade, war, trade wars, which would further inflame the global downturn. The Buy American Clause, for example, is not, in my opinion, as it has been written, a protectionist passage, for it has many loopholes that will allow international companies to participate in its infrastructure projects. The Buy American Clause, as I see it, is simply a political football used to shore up the support of many politicians' ailing constituencies. In my opinion, it has already proved through the level of international conferences and bilateral meetings that hold solidarity as the main goal for countries in order to minimize the length and depth of the crisis. The third issue I would like to address is the, the development of a uni-multipolar world. A uni-multipolar world describes an international system with many considerable powers but one superpower. Though the United States will remains, remain the world's single superpower for many years to come, their current standing is unsustainable in the long run due to their 0% savings rate, their balance of payments, and annual, deficit, annual budget deficits, and their $60 trillion in unfunded liabilities. The capital infusions from the stimulus and bailout packages could also speed up this progress if not infused efficiently. The Americans are further weighed down by two wars that have no end in sight. While they have committed to leaving Iraq in 19 months, the situation is much more delicate than the media commonly acknowledges. The arming of Sunni militias and the influence that Iran has over the Shiite majority and the federal government, coupled with Muqtada al-Sadr's growing influence in Baghdad, create an atmosphere that is primed for another civil war. Due to these factors, the American position of power and influence will gradually recede. The other emerging economies will rise. This will come mostly from the BRIC nations, which consists of Brazil, Russia, India, and China. These growing powers will create a need for international cooperation and mediation. A balancing of power will also aid in inducing countries to have a longer-term vision of the world and to become more strategic and less tactical. In summary, the larger the amount of strong competitors, the more efficient you must become in order to succeed, as is the case in the business world. The fourth and final issue I would like to address is the effect of the new administration. For the past eight years, George W. Bush employed an almost completely unilateral technique, as was proved with the war in Iraq that the UN refused to ratify. America lost much of its authority with the international community due to various effects such as the flawed intelligence that led to the war in Iraq, the occurrences at Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay, extraordinary rendition, and its enhanced interrogation techniques. A good example of how this unilateral philosophy hurt America's standing was in 2003, when the former Iranian President Khatami, with the blessing of the Supreme Leader, offered President Bush what was called the Grand Bargain. The Iranians were willing, up, willing to give up its nuclear program, willing to stop the support of international terrorist groups such as Hamas and Hezbollah, and willing to end its opposition to Israel. In exchange 
for it, it was asking for security assurances and for the removal of oil sanction or for the removal of all sanctions against Iran. President Bush chose not to answer the proposal and did not present it to any of its allies for analysis. As the grand bargain failed, it embarrassed and delegitimized the reformist Iranian government, which then lost its next election to the far more hardliners led by President Muqtada or led by President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. This has had a widespread implications and has weakened America's negotiations to halt especially its nuclear program. Although the American reputation has been sullied, the international popularity of President Obama will assist in increasing the legitimacy and influence of the United States. President Obama has pledged to listen instead of making demands. He has guaranteed to make decisions in concert with other world leaders, and he has been quoted as saying, we know that America cannot meet the threats of this century alone, but we also know that the world cannot meet them without America. Thus, to summarize, globalization has increased the interconnectedness of international communities. The financial crisis has proved that there is a massive level of international systemic risk. The emergence of a uni-multipolar world has increased the number of countries with power and influence in the international community. And the new Obama administration has provided evidence that Americans are now going to take a multilateral approach to international solutions. These four issues provided the framework, and I believe confirm that our global environment will enable in legitimizing and reforming our multilateral institutions, and will also aid in increasing our world's leaders' tolerance for compromise. Thank you very much for this opportunity and for having me here today. Okay, thank you, Josh. And now we'd like to invite questions from the judges and the audience. Uh, please do use the microphone if you'd like to ask a question. We can, uh, I can bring you the microphone. And uh, I'd like to ask that you um, uh, keep your, your comments short and your questions to the point so that we can hear from the speaker. So are there any questions for our speaker? Josh, would you like to come back up, please? Josh, I was unclear what you meant by multilateral institutions. Could you give us some examples? Uh, I'm sorry. Primarily, I mean the UN and uh, the institutions that are associated with the UN, such as the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund. And I was also um, multilateral institutions, I guess you could group in regional institutions with them, such as NAFTA or NATO or the African Union or even the European Union could, could be viewed as an economical multilateral institute. Um, my question is, how do you address the tendency of multilateral institutions, such as the World Bank or um, the World Trade Organization, to amplify the um, vulnerability of smaller countries and smaller economies? Well, I do think that this is a very good uh, comment and question. But as the International Monetary Fund has done, is they have created a new dynamic voting system, whereas in the UN they give the most powerful countries the most voting rights. They give the five uh, permanent members of the Security Council the only veto. But in the International Monetary Fund, what they're doing is that um, they're creating a system where block voting can stop. So the industrialized countries 
can no longer um, put high interest rates on um, such as Ukraine, who's gone to the IMF for loans. But what they're doing now is they're trying to work in concert with other countries, and they're having more of a bilateral discussion. So it's not all of the big guys ganging up on one other country. It's, say, I think Ukraine has um, formed an alliance with Germany, and Germany is giving Ukraine very low, um, uh, very low interest and prime rate loans right now. I hope that answered your question. It is a problem, though. I mean, the, the small guys are always going to have a more difficult time. But through globalization, and hopefully all countries can flourish through globalization, which might not be the case, but through globalization, it, it will uh, change and more have a more balancing effect. Uh, my name is Trevor Page. Thank you for a very comprehensive and succinct um, description of the state of the world at this time, focusing clearly on some of our major problems. I spent 30 years with multilateral organizations, the UN in fact. How would you propose to, or, or what do you think about the current plans to restructure the Security Council of the UN? And do you think a reformed UN is in fact the answer, or do we need something totally different? Well, I think that this is a very good question, and I'm very interested in the United Nations Security Council, and I do believe that they have many options, and what they currently have with the five um, nations with the veto power, it's just not working. For most part, it's not working because of cases like Sudan. It's not working because they're the only nations who are allowed to have nuclear weapons in the NPT. I think that... They could do a lot of things. They could enlarge the permanent members, add Brazil, add Turkey, add Mexico perhaps, but they definitely have to do something uh, to create a, a more level playing field because a lot of the time, due to alliances from oil such as in Sudan, the Chinese and the Russians are going to veto almost everything. But the United Nations, I believe, is very important because it has the ability and it already has the legitimacy, well, some would say it doesn't have much legitimacy, but it is already viewed as such a powerful organization. I think that it is also important to have all these other multilateral organizations because you cannot solve many problems with the whole world at the table. Some problems need regional solutions, but I also think that the UN um, is an important body and needs to be around in order to find success. And I do believe that there's going to be problems with almost any other type of uh, multilateral institution. It is much better than the Concert of Europe was, and it's much better than the League of Nations. And it needs reforms, especially to its Human Rights Council. But it's very difficult to say exactly what these reforms should be. Hi, Josh. <coughs> Sorry. Um, with the rising globalization, we often see uh, the privatization of a lot of what you would call social services. Um, I guess, what's your position on that? Is that a, is that a good thing? Um, and if it is, why? And if it's not, why? Thanks. I don't believe it's a good thing. Um, especially education. I don't believe that education should especially be 
overly privatized just because it's creating a barrier between the high-income students and the low-income students especially. And I also believe um, you look at the United States, for example, with their privatized health care. They spend the most out of any industrialized nation. And in turn, they get the least because they don't have um, a socialized form of medicine, as they often would like to say, or the Republicans do. We'll just take one more question. Thanks, Josh. My name is James Moore. Uh, gross domestic product, the formula that you're using, um, do you think that that's actually the best way to organize the world? I'll give you an example. Uh, because it's measurable, if you ship logs to China, have them make in, into child's toys and paint them with lead and then ship them back, you've got all the shipping costs plus the medical costs plus the other costs, and all of this is counted in GDP. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you have some grandfathers carving uh, toys out of wood for their children, it doesn't measure at all. Do you think that if we looked to a society looking more at sharing as an organizing model than greed and selfishness, which is sort of the Friedmanite model for the globalization, yeah, would that be a more viable way given the planet is finite and has finite resources? Well, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. The reason why I use GDP in here is because it's, it's sort of a, a basis level. Most people can understand what it means, but there is problems with it. Illegal activities are even counted in GB, GDP. And um, I do think that there would be other ways to measure it. I personally am. I believe in the Keynesian model. I believe in uh, what the Americans are doing with um, infusing capital because, as Paul Krugman says, that an economy has um, a level that they can establish, and during a downturn, they are only able to establish this level. So if done efficiently and they infuse what is left, and it's very difficult to do it efficiently, but if they do it efficiently, then I believe that that's the best way to have recirculation of the capital. And I do believe in a more uh, a liberal standing, uh, a big middle class. I'm a, I'm a very big believer in the way uh, the Swedish conduct their government. I hear all the time that maybe the Swedish model would not work in the United States and Canada, but I think because they have the highest human capital, um, they have the highest level of education, and uh, they do pay a ten on taxes, which is, you know, it's not the nicest thing to do, but they have a high literacy rate, a high educational value, and I just believe that that's the way uh, to conduct a, a government. I hope that answers your question. Move on. Judges, is, are you ready? Okay. All right. For the purposes of our internet audience, I'd like to remind everybody that this is SACPA on campus, which is a collaboration between the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs the University of Lethbridge Students' Union, and the Lethbridge Public Interest Research Group. Uh, we have, uh, oh, before we introduce, before I introduce our next speaker, I'd like to tell you about a couple of SACPA sessions that are coming up. Um, this evening, they have a special session, which will be uh, beginning at 7 p.m. at the Lethbridge Public Library, 
the topic is Responding to Climate Change, Adaptation as the Emerging Frontier, and the speaker will be Quentin Chiotti. If you can't make it to any of these sessions, of course, you can go to the SACPA website and listen to them. Uh, this Thursday, March 5th at noon at Country Kitchen Catering, which is downstairs at the keg, uh, there will be a regular SACPA session titled, What Does the Public Interest Mean for Natural Resource Regulation in Alberta? And the speaker there will be Jody Heilmeyer. And back to today's session, we have our second speaker for you today. Uh, she will also be speaking for 15 minutes, and then we will have 10 minutes of questions afterwards. So I'd like to introduce to you Trish Silk, who will be speaking on change through diversity. Please help me welcome Trish. Thank you for coming here to support me and my opponent at the Changing the World Student Speakers Challenge. What got me interested in participating is the question, what does change mean in our world today? Well, there are lots of answers to that, but to me, change means a motive, a reason to be here. I'm addressing the how and the why change is important, using homosexuality as my case study. Uh, an audience member from last week commented to me that the difference between watching a student speak versus a professor was that the students were putting themselves in the line. They weren't, argue, they weren't simply arguing an academic paradigm, but they were also presenting and defending their personal beliefs and ideas. I've spent the last five years studying anthropology at the University of Lethbridge because of a very strong and, uh, personal and academic belief that change is possible through a better understanding of ourselves and the so-called other. I think a considerable amount of the world's problems have to do with the difficulties in communicating, understanding, and validating differences. I don't mean this lightly or that the world's issues can be fixed with a light switch flick of understanding. It is a messy and complicated process that people from all walks of life struggle with. In order to further explore my argument, I would like to highlight a definition of change and homosexuality. The idea of one thing becoming another and the implication of goodness seems very straightforward to the concept of change. However, who can create change? Why is it important? Is it good or bad? These are important questions. A Greek philosopher, Heraclitus, said that the only constant is change. And Gandhi's famous words around change was, be the change you wish to see in the world. Maybe those wise, ans maybe those wise words answer some of those questions. I think change is inherent. Whether they are perceived or good or bad is up to us. It is, that is one of the reasons that I decided to take this challenge. But who is this us? This leads me to my definition of homosexuality. While it certainly isn't what most people think when the us is invoked, it does, however, point out the difficulties in finding a single fixed perspective or definition based on identity. Homosexuality can be, homosexuality can be defined numerous ways by numerous people. I would perhaps put forth that the us is a constructed version of differences put together. No one person is the same, coming from different genders, cultures, ages, sexualities, abilities, ethnicities, and geographies. And these differences that create the us are often ignored or placed in silence because of racism, homophobia, sexism, ethnocentrism. In Canada, those silences have been screamed down, evident in the acknowledgement that the Canadian us officially includes, includes same-sex relationships. The inclusion of these civil rights and fight for gay marriage in Canada was a huge legal change that was and still is difficult 
it still was and is a difficult fight. The first Canadian group, the Association for Knowledge, ASK, started in 1964 with a platform to help society understand and accept the variation of sexual norm. And it wasn't until 1969 that the Canadian Parliament decriminalized homosexual conduct in private between two consenting adults. And then in 2005, Canada became the fourth country in the world to legalize same-sex marriage. In those 36 years of struggle, before and still, the queer community struggled inwardly and outwardly for acceptance, personal acceptance, societal acceptance, political acceptance. And this is perhaps a battle that we all struggle with at times. However, sexism, homophobia, and transphobia, and racism complicate the struggle. In these 36 years, feminists... Feminism and feminists fought patriarchal frames. The AIDS epidemic destroyed and rebuilt the gay male community. And grassroots queer organizations like Lethbridge's Gala fought both silently and militaristically to make a path for their truce. I feel very uncomfortable boiling down more than 30 years of complex and contested history. However, I want to show a face of change that I identify with very much. What does change mean in the world today? I said at the beginning that it was a motive, a reason to be here. I am not the only one who feels like this in a, um, in a large part that is demonstrated through people's struggles with homosexuality and gender issues. That, uh, sorry. I'm not the only one who feels like this and is a large part demonstrated by people who struggle with homosexual and gender, uh, gender issues. I am here to talk to you about this today, in part because of them. Change in the world in general comes drenched in power structures, and it has an impact on each and every person. This is why when I talk about change, I don't mean to embrace, embrace an easy philosophy of listening and reflecting and being empathetic towards a difference, because it can't, because it can simply ignore the very issues that it creates and perpetuates. Instead, I mean to take change and responsibility to a personal level, the dynamic human level that creates and reaffirms the status quo for change. An example I'd like to share with you, while not Canadian, does bring together the, nicely the complexities of our social system and individual action. Arnold Schwarzenegger, serving as the governor of California, reported in 2004 during the first San Francisco weddings on NBC all of a sudden, we see riots, we see protests, we see people clashing. The next thing we know, there are injured and there are dead people. The New York Times, reporting on the same event, said that the San Francisco police reported no violence related to same-sex marriage certificates. The governor of California, I doubt, went out of his way to lie to the press, but instead reported what he thought to be the truth. His perception shaped his reality and fostered an environment where facts don't even allow for the acknowledgement of anything but his own perceptions to exist. Richard Moore, who recorded the event in his book, The Long Arc of Social Justice, said that these, percepti these perceptions have an active role in how a person takes in the world. They are part of an apparatus, a lens, if you will, through which most of us perceive the world, that stereotypes can screen any facts, any ideas, or any argument uh, that disagrees with the person's already held beliefs. To go beyond what Moore is saying, it is, a, it is more than stereotypes that stop people from interacting and listening to difference. To be engaged in critical, to be engaged in critical thinking and reflection when it comes to yourself, let alone the so-called other, is necessary for positive change. Shireen Rizek, an activist, 
and sociology professor at the University of Toronto has a great deal uh, to say on tackling the subject of difference. One of her points challenges and deepens my argument. What makes the cultural what makes a cultural difference approach so inadequate in various pedagogical movements is not so much that it is wrong, for people in reality are diverse and do have culturally specific practices that must be taken into account, but that its emphasis on cultural diversity is too often to sense in a multicultural spiral to a superficial reading of differences that make power relations invisible and keep the dominant cultural norms in place. I agree with Shane Rizak, and my ideas of change aren't meant to be a surface band-aid for the issues we face. It is complex, challenging, and messy. For example, gay rights to me and many others have heralded have heralded in a new level of civil rights, but also it has marginalized others, not just those who are strongly strongly opposed for homophobic reasons, but other facets and people in the gay community. Jane Rule, a Canadian author, activist, and lesbian who was given the Order of Canada, said, With all that we have learned, we should be helping our heterosexual brothers and sisters out of their state-defined prisons, not volunteering to join them. Her comment lends well to those in the queer community who feel even more marginalized by gay marriage. Queer incorporates a large number of identities, gay, lesbian, bisexual, asexual, transgender, transsexual, two-spirited, genderqueer, and many others. So as you can imagine, the prospect of gay marriage, which arguably has been fought on racist and classist principles, may be unsettling. By this I mean, as Tom Warner, author of Never Going Back, A History of Queer Activism in Canada, points out, campaigns for inclusion in mainstream family structures mean accepting a particular concept of family originally imported from Britain and Europe and only modified to accommodate same-sex relationships. The result of it is the battle for same-sex marriages were fought predominantly by affluent, urban, white, gay, and lesbian, and bisexuals, meaning that virtually no lesbians or gay men of color, low-income, or disability were involved, and their experiences were left out. There are people who are politically active in the queer community that reject the white picket fence and 2.5-kid mentality that the supposed middle-class normality looks like. I bring these points up to demonstrate the complexities involved in change in identity. Many organizations fought for same-sex marriage and all the rights associated with it, but perhaps in doing so, as Razak points out, it makes power relationships invisible and keeps the dominant cultural norms in place. It's impossible to step outside of the power relations that situate... It's impossible to step outside of our power relations that our situation imbues us in, and therefore problematic not to acknowledge it. Don't let that depress you too much, because remember that change is constant. And to recognize and reflect on power relations personally and socially is part of that process. I would like to quote Razak again. Her goal, and perhaps mine as well, is to move towards accountability, a process that begins with the recognition that we are all implicating a system of oppression that profoundly structures our understanding of one another. That is, how we come to know and perform ourselves in a way that reproduce social hierarchies. Tracing our complicity in these systems require that we shed the notions of mastering difference, of abandoning the idea that differences are pre-given, knowable, and existing in a social and historical vacuum. To me, this means a number of things. The mastering of difference or being all understanding is impossible, and if it were, it would mean letting go of our individuality. However, to take responsibility and accountability for ourselves and what we do in the world and awareness of what the context of the world is is key. 
When Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world, I don't think it should be taken as a license to righteously do what you want to do, but to take upon yourself the challenge of communicating uh, with difference within yourself and others to create change. To me, this is a process of change. If not, the California senator says it's a good example of seeing what you simply want to see in the world, which may not be the truth. He manipulated his worldview to the point of not being able to see the reality of what was going on and believed it to the point where he had no qualms about reproducing it on national television. He should be served as a warning for the rest of us that without challenge and change, the reality and truth of others can slip past us and perpetuate painful issues. To me, change is a constant, and there is never any point which I'm going to say, I'm done, the world's perfect. It just isn't going to happen. But what I can do and what you can do is to confront yourselves to be the verb of change. And by this, I mean to open yourselves up to the challenge of understanding difference without letting go of your core values. There's a lot of talk about tolerance and political correctness in Canada, but it's an entirely different thing to say to be the change that says live and let live because life and living go beyond tolerance and political correctness. It is a messy and complex and involves listening to others as you listen to yourself. Personally, if I was asked with why I think someone is uncomfortable and hateful towards homosexuals, I would say I partially understand, but I would ask them to understand that this is my truth and my life. The conversation is not one where differences can be easily recognized. However, otherness, the objectification, the dehumanizing aspects that allow people to willingly live their lives in ignorance and hatred may be challenged and changed. Thank you. Thank you, Trish. Uh, we'll now open up the floor to questions. I want to remind you again to please use the microphone when you ask your questions so that we can hear you on the recording. So, if uh, Trish, if we could invite you back up to the podium, please. Questions, comments, concerns? Um, my question is, in this ideal world where there's no prejudice, um, how you deal with issues such as putting food on people's tables or, like, the mutiny that's going on in Bangladesh right now, how do you deal with those sort of issues? Well, I think a, a world without prejudice doesn't really exist. Um, and that, that's not what I was trying to point out per se. I was trying to um, talk about a, a live-and-let-live mentality that allows you to not necessarily say that you understand what somebody else is saying, but you can empathize. It's kind of a different thing. Um, I put this forward more as a theory about how to live life, the problems of unequal distribution of, of wealth or um, issues that people face around the world to do with the context of genocide and war. Um, I believe they have to deal with communication issues that go back to the root of what I'm talking about. This is kind of more like uh, a bottom-up approach that uh, stems out from more than me. It stems out from what other people can do in different um, situations. Uh, 
Hi, thanks for your speech. My question is just kind of related that if in the future that we are able to build that tolerance towards homosexuality, that it could actually, do you believe that it could spread further through education? If we understand those people that are going through those genocide, we're more likely to care about them, right? So I see where you're coming with homosexuality. Do you see that it's the same kind of emotion that comes from the tolerance and empathizing with those who are homosexual and the rest of the world in, I guess, solving a lot of the world's problems? Yeah, I, I picked homosexuality because it's a, a topic and change that I've seen in my lifetime and that I care very deeply about. But the idea of not being able to understand somebody because you're afraid of them or uh, angry at them or simply just because they come from a completely different context as you um, doesn't have to lead to people ignoring each other and perpetuating painful issues but can um, maybe not be peacefully reconciled but messy and hardworkingly reconciled into um, into a situation where um, to live and let live. Chris, you talked about the uh, events of the early 60s or the, the genesis of, of uh, the acceptance of homosexuality beginning in the 60s. Definitely um, the beginning of the fight, yeah. The beginning of the fight, okay. Uh, what external events in the world uh, do you think might have contributed to the success of that, uh, that movement? So that now we do have gay marriage, for example, in, in Canada and several other countries in the world. Uh, well, initially in uh, 1969, um, a report was passed in England, um, which uh, basically decriminalized homosexuality in England, which had a, a profound effect on um, uh, Canada, Australia, um, their England's colonized uh, spaces. Um, so that's how homosexuality became decriminalized in Canada. It wasn't... Um, It wasn't exactly uh, a Canadian thing, but if you look at how um, the United States and Canada is, like Canada, uh, since 2005, uh, legally allows same-sex marriage, but the United States doesn't. And um, the United States has more population. Their, their gay rights are far more organized um, as opposed to Canada. Um, and they've been fighting longer. They, they had Stonewall. They had uh, a lot of different things. They had the first gay pride parade. Um, but they don't have the rights, and we do. And that has to do with, uh, I think, a combination of uh, Canadian sentiment, our, our legislative system, our civil rights, um, and, and the general pop culture of uh, acceptance versus in the United States. I was thinking more of the external events having nothing to do with homosexuality per se, but okay. the, the societal changes uh, oh, sure. of, of wherever, you know, where do these sure, come right? from? Because uh, the 60s were a change for a lot of things, like um, feminism really got its uh, basically kick in the pants uh, or got active. Um, AIDS happened. Uh, generally, more postmodern rec um, rhetoric started to come around the idea that you know there isn't just one way to live and there isn't just one truth and one right as well as you know um, uh, Vietnam and the war of the 60s like it, it definitely goes within a global, global context of what's happening for sure yeah Hi I'm James Moore um, thank you Trish uh, 
found it quite profound. You, you put a heck of a lot of stuff into 15 minutes there. Um, but I have a comment. Uh, reminded me, as you were speaking and expanding your thoughts there, of the reverse, which we saw in Nazi Germany. And the guys, I forget who said, you know, first they came for the Jews and I was silent. And then they came for the gypsies and I was silent. And then they came for the homosexuals and I was silent. And then they came for the disabled and I was silent. And when they came for me, there was no one left to speak. And I think, you know, it's really nice to hear this expansion of diversity and the context of view and not the imposition. I just want to thank you for that. Thanks, Trish. Um, you made mention of the relationship um, between racism and homophobia, and it struck me that, um, as you were speaking, the decriminalization of um, homosexual behavior in Canada was right on the heels of the decriminalization of uh, mixed-race marriages in the United States. And I just wonder if you wanted to elaborate a bit on that, the connection between racism and homophobia. In the United States especially, the political tactics um, used um, by those fighting for same-sex marriage rights are very much along the lines of those who are fighting for interracial um, marriage rights. They, they use the same political tactics. They reference each other constantly. Um, uh, so it is totally part of that. The racism and homophobia thing that I was talking about um, uh, Marion Smith and a few other people have documented uh, that uh, homosexuality and same-sex marriage was okayed in Canada because of the idea that, not necessarily that it's okay that I'm attracted to somebody of the same sex, but the idea that I want to spend my life with one person and I want to love that person and I want them to be protected financially and medically and I have a right to those rights. So it's very much playing on the values of the white middle class, and uh, which kind of creates uh, like there's only like one type of homosexual, and they don't ever they're not um, you know criminals or get divorced many times or have lots of kids. So that's kind of uh, what I was going to add. Thank you, Chris. Trish, I'm Bev Mendel-Atherstone. Um, thank you very much for your thesis of tolerance uh, in the form of a case study. You refer time and again to um, the cultural norms, especially the cultural norms of power, and uh, how we're sort of, uh, to mix metaphors, um, shuffling chairs on the Titanic, and we get involved in that, and we don't look at the, the big social norms. So what do you see now in society that gives you hope for change on the larger scale, seeing that your, your talk was on the case study. What do you see in terms of big changes that would perhaps uh, support your, your case study going to a, a larger picture? Uh, not to sound narcissistic, but uh, me and you guys. Uh, if anyone's ever seen the movie Yes Men or have heard of the concept, um, these guys went around the world and talked to top officials and um, said, 
uh, racist, homophobic, absolutely terrible things that no one batted an eye. Everybody was silent, and the only forum that spoke out against these people who were just, like they talked about the idea of the, the reburger, which is basically making a burger out of human excrement for third world country people to eat. And the only people that uh, basically stood up and said, you know, this, is, this isn't right with students, people who uh, choose, chose to use their voice. So even this, though this terrifies me, I, I want to use my voice. I want to say what I think is necessary. have time for one more question. Um, even in the most tolerant of societies, when people are putting their best effort to be tolerant for diversity, there's always still kind of people that may harbor bad feelings towards certain demographics. How do you feel that you can um, make this into a positive and people can express their feelings rather than it turning into something potentially dangerous? I think tolerance and political correctness is a really interesting thing. I think it's created a lot of breathing room for people, but I think it also has a side effect of um, people just sitting in silence and stewing about particular issues. And I said it is a messy process, and um, especially within the case of, of gay rights, people had to fight. They, you know, um, places are still politically contested. The idea that you want to let transsexuals into your gay rights parade or stuff like that. These ideas and politics, they go around and around. So it's not an easy process. But I would say not so much the idea of tolerance and not so much the idea of political correctness, but the idea of on a personal level, when you're able to reflect on the context of your situation, and by that I mean whatever your social standing, your race, your ethnicity, your age, however you think that affects you, and to be able to willingly open yourself up to somebody else who is different, not necessarily to say it's, I'm 100% fine with you being different, but I'm okay with you living your life and you're being okay if you're okay with me. And I think that is what tolerance should be, but this political correctness of seeing shit or stuff that you're uncomfortable with and um, not saying anything, I I don't know if that creates um, in the end what tolerance really should be. Thank you very much.